Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by our very special guest, Ty Walrod. Ty is leading the On Deck Scale program that has just launched today. Ty, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. I'm stoked to be here. So, Ty, by, by way of introduction, uh, why don't you talk about what is the On Deck Scale program and what is the your journey in in coming to to, to run it and start it within On Deck? Sure thing. Yeah. So, what we're doing is uh, we're building On Deck Scale, which is a new six month fellowship that we're building from the ground up designed to help talented founders scale as leaders. You could kind of think YPO for Blitzscale founders. What led me here was my own journey as a founder. I've, I've uh, had a tendency to kick a lot of things off in my life and um, I've specifically grown two organizations over the last 10 years um, into having substantial impact. And through building those, I learned a lot of the lessons of an early stage founder, sometimes the hard way, and and certainly uh, learned a lot of things with the help of many people supporting me. And you know, after I left my last company, I started supporting a number of primarily early stage founders, working through their biggest challenges, working with them as an advisor or almost like a hidden co-founder in some cases, and. You know, many, many early stage founders work through the same challenges. And I was really excited to cross paths with the on deck team to think about how can we help founders scale themselves um, as they build their companies, remove obstacles, et cetera. So that's what brought me here. And I'm super excited to be building this program. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, so, so let's hear more about the program, uh, and then we'll go deeper into some of the, some of the challenges that seed founders uh, and later stage face. So most fellowships are, you know, eight weeks or, or 10 weeks. This one is, is six months. How should we think about what people should expect throughout the program? What, why it's six months? And then maybe who's the right person to join it? Sure thing. Well, let me start with the sort of core value proposition. The OnDeck Scale Fellowship is going to look and feel a little bit different than some of the other fellowships. Um, and there are really two components to the value proposition. First is we're building a tight-knit community. Uh, we already have a lot of that in place, but there are a lot of folks who are really looking for that sense of support from other founders. And the second component is uh, putting in place the structures and practices for scaling companies. And so those are really the two areas that we're planning to focus on, and a lot kind of falls into those. So the people we're, we're targeting are really founders who have raised at least $1.5 million, so at least the seed stage, on through IPO. And a portion of our content and programming will be focused across the board uh, by interest area. Um, and ev- everyone who's a founder fellow in the program can jump in whenever they want. Um, but also, a lot of the content and programming will be focused on specific smaller cohorts of founders that are a similar stage. And that's specifically because we're putting in place structures for mentorship, one-on-one relationships, accountability groups, especially for earlier stage founders to make sure that they get the support they need and they deliver against the goals they set for themselves. 
And also I'm really excited about uh, introducing, so what are sort of like mastermind groups uh, for founders to bring their biggest problems and work on solving them together. So there are lots of ways that we're gonna have structures for founding, founders supporting each other. And back to who's the target audience, we're really focused on you know not just the founders who have raised 1.5 million, that is a threshold that we're setting uh, because we do want founders to have reached a certain scale. But on top of that, we, we really want people who are focused on building venture scale companies because they're going to be working through similar types of problems. And then, Eric, the second part of your question was really focused on the six-month fellowship versus a shorter fellowship like some of OnDeck's other programs. And the reality is we're helping founders tackle some pretty big goals, like doubling the size of their team or putting in place the pieces to raise a significant funding round. And uh, whereas many fellowships are sort of hyper-focused, we're addressing a broader spectrum of founders. So we're kind of, as we build this program, we're kind of breaking it into sort of three sections, um, almost like three stages of uh, a SpaceX launch. We've got the liftoff, which is going to be the beginning of the fellowship. We're going to have a lot going on. There are going to be a lot of new relationships built new content, structures, et cetera. We're going to invite uh, experienced executive coaches to meet the founders and the fellowship, et cetera. So up front, there's going to be a lot going on. And then the second phase is really what I'm calling the cruise phase. And really, this is maybe kind of cheesy and maybe we'll change it. But the second phase of the fellowship is really, you know what you know who your fellow founders are and you understand the frameworks and even the cadence of how the fellowship will work. And so you know how to lean in and get what you want to accomplish the goals that you will have set at the beginning. And then the last phase is really the landing. As we wrap up the fellowship, we're going to recap our wins and losses and share what we've learned along the way. So all in all, it's just a bit more involved. And, uh, you know, we really aim to deliver value to the founders. I think the last thing I'll say, too, on this is founders that are participating in on-deck scale are already time strapped and they've got a lot going on in running their companies. So we respect that as well. And we're committed to making sure that time invested here results in significant uh, returns for the founders. Last, uh, last question about the program, and then we'll dive into some of these uh, topic areas. Talk talk about how OnDeck scale will interplay with, uh, with some of the other fellowships, you know, OD first 50 and and OnDeck angels or VC, et cetera. Sure. No, that's a great question. There's, there are lots of synergies here. You know, we're building the flywheel for an entire ecosystem. So uh, as many of the listeners might or might not know, um, there are a number of different fellowships that really interplay well with OnDeck Scale. The OnDeck First 50 Fellowship, which which just launched, is uh, placing incredible people at high-value, high-growth startups. And so we are excited to work with them to bring founders of OnDeck scale to see all the great talent at OnDeck First 50. OnDeck Angels and OnDeck VC are bringing together incredible investors who can provide feedback or insights or perspectives to the OnDeck scale founders as well. And so we're excited to see what kind of connections might emerge there. And then, of course, the OnDeck Fellowship, which has been the bread and butter of the OnDeck program, um, has many founders coming out of their starting companies and looking for support. 
So I'm possibly most excited by the ways we can support those founders as they get their companies off the ground and start to scale. Totally. So let's dive into uh, some of the some different categories of of, of company building and, and where founders sometimes make mistakes or or, or, or where uh, you know or get or they get tripped up. Um, so maybe let's start with with recruiting. I'll uh, I'll share some of mine and then I'll, I'll pass it over to to you. One thing I see is that when startups raise you know a, a million or, or one point five, they immediately try to get to you know hire eight to ten people to uh, to look official, and they they feel like it's you know more of a real company now. And and, and I find that they do that w- way too quickly before they've reached product market fit. And you know at, at that when you have eight to ten people, you're now you know, spending a lot of time managing. Uh, but if you're a pre-product market fit company, you should be focused, you know, solely on product market fit. And then you have to, you know, and so what ends up happening is you end up managing, but you don't have product market fit. So you then have to end up, you know, letting those those people go. So I recommend that people uh, start small, unless, you know, that incremental hire is 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 really focused on helping get to to, to product market fit. And then, and then as they do get product market fit and, and should be, you know, growing and scaling, I find that companies wait too long to implement uh, a process, and so they're they're running their candidates haphazardly through a through a, a non process. They're not communicating transparently about comp, equity, role. They're they're hiring non essential employees. And I heard one framework for saying that if if a, if an employee is not essential within three months, it's probably not a good hire. And then they're overvaluing their their hiring skills too much and and not uh, not firing quick enough. Keith Raboy has a good, uh, you know, framework when he says you don't want zero defect, uh, defect hiring. It means you're not hiring y- enough or, or, or quick enough. And he says you want to make the hire when you're seventy uh, percent confident. The the other thing is I, I, I just don't see CEOs spend enough uh, enough time on recruiting, especially passive candidates. Uh, a lot of the, the great candidates that that we we had it on deck, we've been recruiting for for quite a long time um and even when they weren't ready to to, to leave their job those are uh, those are some that, that come to mind for me how, how about you in the recruiting department no i think that's i think those are great in fact um i liked keith's feedback because that's one of the top things on my list is looking for perfect and the reality is every startup should try to hire a players but don't look for perfect because that doesn't exist so that's certainly one Hiring too quickly, I think that's spot on. A big, a big challenge I've seen, and and I even did once, is if you hire someone who's appropriate for later stage than you are, it creates all kinds of challenges within your company. Within your company, so hire for where you're at right now and where you're headed in the very near term, but don't get ahead of yourself. Certainly agree with you on the process. I think the sooner you can document it the better and make sure you're standardizing. What are you asking people? What are you looking for? Make your criteria extremely clear. You don't have to start out by using a system, but as soon as you're hiring enough people, I recommend it because it can help you be more consistent and fair with your recruiting process. And by system, I mean something like greenhouse, et cetera. So the more standardized you can be, the better and the more you know, openly you can communicate with both your internal team and with candidates, uh, the better as well. And one more thing uh, that you you made me think of on equity is, and this and this comes back to the type of company you want to be building. But it drives me crazy when I hear that a employee or a prospective employee was offered a certain number of options, but they really have no idea what that means. Share the denominator. Let them know 
where the company is at and what portion of the company you're offering them and why, and just be as open as possible. That's just, that's my personal preference, but I think that that's best practice. So those are a few of, uh, a few of my thoughts and reactions on recruiting. Uh, I think the last thing you hit the nail on the head, but founders are often not involved in recruiting early enough. I made this mistake myself in the very beginning. And the, the reality is most founders don't know a lot about recruiting and it's not this big mystery, but it's something that you kind of have to learn and you have to practice and you have to make some mistakes. So you really have to get out on the court and, and play ball, so to speak. So my recommendation is learn some of the basics, even jump into something like, you know, uh, and I'm certainly not trying to make this an ad for on deck scale, but recruiting is absolutely something we're going to be talking about and working on with on deck scale, especially with some of our earlier stage founders. It's just essential when you're building the company that you're as that you as the founder are the one building the team. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. I'm excited for the proprietary pipeline we'll have with, with OD 50 and yeah, you got, you got to be, whether it's on deck or some other, uh, you know, pipeline, you, you have to make sure that you're getting enough, enough people in because it's a, it is a numbers game at, at some level. The other thing on, on recruiting is I, I heard this framework, I believe from Stripe, which is that, uh, time horizons really matter when you're three months old, you need to hire people who come in and contribute right away. You don't have the luxury of not doing so. But when you're three years old, you could take you know more bets on people who, who will mature uh, over time. I want to uh, transition a little bit to uh, how about management? So, some mistakes you know because uh, people make are often because they just haven't you know thought about learning uh, management. They sort of think it's, it's intuitive as opposed to really learning the structure of it and how it's how it how it's been done. And so common mistakes we see are you know people not having weekly one on ones. People not clearly delineating roles between the founders, who, who owns what, where, where is the dividing and conquering. When, when the founders aren't, you know, they're not involving the org in key decisions or, or, or people aren't having clarity on how decisions are getting made. Not, in, in that point, not having clear KPIs or, or being transparent about runway or, or where the business is. Um, and, and the other sort of mistake I see is, is people doing uh, work on behalf of reports. Because they they're not <laughs> sufficient at delegating enough. Uh, uh, Alex from a clear bit calls this heroing because they, they want to be the they want to be the hero. Uh, those are some that come to mind for me. Mm-hmm. Those are great. I mean, I'll just I'll just keep building on that. One of the challenges that I see and I've definitely observed myself for early stage companies is consensus decision making. And when it's just two of you, say you and your co-founder, it's it seems really easy to just talk about all the decisions together. But the reality is that's not setting yourself up a framework for scaling and growing. Um, And it also doesn't set expectations between you and your co-founder off on the right foot when you don't split responsibilities. So I think consensus decision-making is a bad idea unless it's a big decision. So most decisions are short-term and reversible. The ones that are bigger or more expensive or much longer term or one-way doors, as Roy at Bloomberg Beta likes to call them, those you should take some more time on. Otherwise, move quickly. Um, that kind of takes me to my, my next you know, management mistake that early stage founders make, which is really lacking role clarity. I think this comes back to understanding the fundamentals of authentic communication and learning how to have conversations. But a lot of co-founder relationships get started on the wrong foot where they don't agree 
even from the beginning on who's going to be the CEO versus not. And I see this happen time and again, and it creates challenges down the road. So agree on the roles and responsibilities within the company, and then entrust your team members to make decisions within the their responsibility in the company. I think just a couple of other things that come to mind, you know, it's really important to be in the weeds on a lot of things, but it's also important once you've mastered something to start delegating it as quickly as possible. And I see a lot of founders hold on to things without delegating and they become the bottleneck for everything. So that's a, that's another one that's it might seem obvious, but it's also it's something that a lot of people uh, could benefit by working on. And and I certainly learned that as well. And, uh, you know, I think the last, you know, the last thing, and you kind of said a version of this when you mentioned KPIs, but really giving your team clearly defined goals is essential, even though they change very rapidly in a startup. You know, so one of the frameworks that is more recent that I love is The One Thing. And The One Thing is, is a book, it's by Gary Keller, and it talks about Essentially, you know, what's the one thing you can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier and unnecessary. And you can actually anchor your company toward multi-year or one-year or one-month goals that go down to the individual employee level and help them get clarity on what what should be their one thing to focus on to help the company hit its goals. So that's another tactic or or technique that I've you know, been implementing in my own life. And I, I hear a lot more founders using that framework as well. So it's just an example, but I kind of love it. Yeah, I love that. Let's transition to to, to growth. Some, uh, some, some common mistakes I, I see uh, as people think about you know, growth or go to market is, you know, focusing on acquisition before nailing retention uh, because they like the vanity metrics of, of user growth. Working on multiple products before nailing one product because uh, you know it's always more fun. <laughs> um, convincing yourself and your team that you have product market fit before you do, and then really, really just not understanding what 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 got you there, so you can't recreate it. That was that was something that happened to us at Product Hunt. We sort of got a little bit of ahead of ourselves in thinking that we had all the success with with tech that we could expand to all these different categories, not realizing that there weren't strong you know, network effects between the categories, and so it was it was as though we were starting a new company. For every for every category, as opposed to, to on deck where we're we're doing it where where it really makes sense and each one con- connects to connects to the other. What w- what comes to mind for you for uh, on the growth side? Yeah, that's th- those are great examples and growth and specifically sales challenges are areas where I had significant learning. Uh, you know, even in my own company, I had never done enterprise sales before, and here we were trying to sell to Fortune one hundred and five hundred companies out of the gate. And so I think the first thing is like, you know, obviously trying to scale before product market fit is a recipe for disaster in a lot of ways, including you're going to end up trying to build a team before you're ready to do that. So backing off from that, I think focusing on getting your first five to 10, 15 customers really happy, understand their pain points, understand what they like and don't like about your product. And the reality is like, even if they're breaking it and causing the system to go down, if you're solving their problem, they're going to help you fix it. And then they're going to refer more people to you and they're going to be supportive first partners. So nailing those first few customers is really essential to having, you know, referenceable, happy customers that you're going to learn a lot from 
I remember one of our very first customers was GitHub. And obviously they have a very technical user base. And sometimes they would break our product and then send us a screenshot and an example of a code snippet on how to fix it. So that is like a very, very ideal first customer. Not every first customer is going to be that technical or willing to help you fix your product, but they were certainly one of my favorite first customers to bring on board because they were very helpful. Another thing that I would reference is as you start to grow beyond your first few customers and you get feedback on pricing, I would be very skeptical that people might be hesitating on price, even though that's what they tell you. And I think you have to come back to, are you solving their pain points? Does the value proposition come across? So those are two of the things that I really want to hit on uh, when it comes to growth. Once you have nailed those and you've got really high retention, you might even have negative churn on a dollar basis. And if you're in that territory, you know, start to pour gas on the on the sales team. Let's go to fundraising uh, a little bit, especially as 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 people think about ra- raising that s- Series A. I, I think a, a few mistakes come to mind for me. Founders make is one is just not maximizing leverage, uh, as in they're waiting until they're almost out of money without sufficient traction or a path to profitability, and thus you know are kind of at the whims of, of the investors instead of um, you know not having to raise. Uh, not having to raise is when you're, you're you have the most leverage, and maybe that's because you're profitable or you're just growing really fast uh, and 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 are in a good place or, or, or smart about your runway. The other is thinking the A will be as easy as the seed, and you know solely vision based as opposed to you know real having uh, you know having real you know metrics or evidence of of traction or proving your core hypothesis. And then another, this one's more like cultural is is just blaming venture capitalists for not getting it, which is. And I think that tends to happen when you've waited too long to talk to VCs, uh, even you know sort of the friendly ones early on, and thus you can't really anticipate their um, you don't anticipate their concerns, and then and then have good answers for it. You just say, hey, they, they don't get it. The, the flip side of that is is being too differential and not having you know conviction in your your core hypothesis and just letting them um, you know guide you a bit too much. And when an investor who Investors may not seem self-aware, but they, they actually are, you know, a little bit when they say, when they give you advice and, and as a founder, you take it too quickly without even sort of second guessing that they, they, they start to question, you know, does this person really have confidence in, in, in their vision or, or do they really have conviction or are they, are they the ones that have a strong product vision? So, so those are some of that, that come to mind for me. Mm-hmm. I think some of the, those are, those are really good, Eric. I think some of the things that, that I would say to build on that is, as you start to think about fundraising, one, you may not need to wait as long as you as you think you do. In other words, if investors tell you to wait for more traction, et cetera, they're only de-risking their own prospective investment. So if you've got momentum and you're going to have expenses, whether it's to pay you and your co-founder and your small team or external expenses, money is out there. And I recommend you raise a little bit of money. Um, and so that's one of the first pieces of feedback I got as a, you know, in, in our early days was wait just a bit longer, get your product further along, et cetera. Only in hindsight, did I realize that, you know, it, it wasn't intended to be bad advice, but it certainly was reducing risk for investors. So if you need to raise money, go raise some money. I think the second thing is when you're ready to raise some money, actually run a really clear disciplined process. And it's not rocket science. It's actually pretty straightforward. You want to think about first, you want to get really clear on what your investor deck is going to say. 
I recommend creating a single page exec summary and put your investor deck together. And there are tons of great templates out there for doing that. Make a really clear target investor list. And by that, I mean, not every seed stage or series A stage investor. I mean, the investors who have demonstrated their interest in caring about what it is you're building or what problem you're solving. And once you have that, then you can run your discipline process and start talking with them and stack your schedule so that you start to line up your meetings. It's, it's not a complicated process. And the reality is I think a lot of founders aren't as disciplined as they are in other areas of their business because it's just an unfamiliar process. And so that's, you know, that's one mistake is just not having a super dialed in process. And once founders address that, it becomes a lot easier to find the people who are interested in what you're building, get to know them better and figure out if you're going to be able to work with them. I think another thing or another mistake is founders believe the why when they get a no. And a piece of advice that a friend of mine, Dan, who started a company called Neighborland, said is believe the no, not the why. And the reality is a lot investors might give you uh, what could be an honest answer for passing on your company. And the advice was, hey, like, there are probably lots of reasons that an investor might not be interested right now. So believe the no, not the why. And then the second piece of that is no means not yet. I've actually had investors who said no to me um, up front. And then with more information or more momentum, more, more sales, better team, et cetera, they come back and are willing to partner up and invest. So those are a couple more pointers that have really helped help grease the wheels on uh, the investment process for me. And, and let's talk about uh, metrics uh, a bit. People are always often asking, you know, um, do, do they have product market fit or what are, what are the metrics they, sh- they should be looking at? It? Of course, it, it depends, you know, uh, for different businesses. Um, and people like the, you know, Rahul Vora from Superhuman has this sort of, you know, famous uh, NPS score of, you know, how many people would would be, uh, you know, disappointed if, if the product was w- w- was was no longer uh, available, um, and they they can be powerful. But I wonder if retention is even uh, is even more powerful in the sense that actions speak uh, speak louder than words. And I wonder if, in just in general, it's it's more important to focus on quality over quantity metrics, i.e., re- retention over uh, over user growth or or, or user numbers. Uh, how do you think about? Uh, product market fit or or just you know metrics that matter uh, m- more generally? Well, my instinct is to agree with you in general uh, regarding retention. If you have customers that love you and are staying with you and are paying more every year, that is a really great sign that your product is meeting their needs. But I also think growth is essential if you're building a venture scale company. And that's that's a mark that I think has to work hand in hand with retention. So my instinct is you've got to focus on both growth and retention and they work hand in hand. And if you're growing too fast and losing a huge chunk of your customers, then your product either isn't working or isn't, or isn't working well enough to retain your customers. So focus on both of them and talk to investors who are really familiar with your space to get an idea on what kind of metrics they're going to be looking for, for a company like you. That doesn't mean that you have to anchor exactly to one investor's feedback because you'll find out that with every investor you talk to, you'll get a little bit different feedback. But my experience is 
you're going to get directional guidance on what kind of metrics they're looking for to invest in a company like yours. Absolutely. Any, anything we haven't covered in terms of uh, mistakes founders make or, or things that you one should think about? One that comes to mind for me is uh, is just co-founder dynamics and, and making sure that you have a healthy uh, healthy dynamic with, with your co-founder. It doesn't have to be uh, you know be- best friends, but if it's if it's getting really bad, it's only going to get worse <laughs> unless you unless you address it. And I, I think some of the biggest causes of of that dynamic getting worse are one just misaligned expectations. And uh, the more there's just clear, you know, division of, uh, of, of labor, division of expectations, and more just alignment on who does what, who should be doing what, uh, and how you measure success of that, the, the easier that is. Of, of course, you know, product market fit solves uh, a lot of problems. Um, but other other sort of ways I see co-founder dynamics breakdown is really just uh, is communication. Um, and I see often some one co-founder uses the other co-founder as a, as a you know, punching bag in terms of venting all their concerns and anxieties. And that is a recipe for disaster. <laughs> That's sort of a, a codependent relationship. Make sure you have somebody else, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a coach or, or somebody else in your life that you can, uh, you can vent to. Uh, and that's not to say uh, you can vent to repeatedly, uh, especially if it's about the other co-founder. And that's not to say that, you know, co-founders can't rely on each other, lean on each other, but you just want to make sure that it's a, it's a sustainable, um, sustainable dynamic. Yeah. I, I mean, absolutely, Eric. And, you know, unfortunately, I've seen a lot of co-founder relationships that really experienced challenges that were unanticipated. And we know enough now, I know enough now from my own experience, and many other people know that you should be able to anticipate certain types of breakdowns and then work so that they are much less likely to happen. So communication is absolutely one. I really recommend the book Radical Candor by Kim Scott. I think it's Kim Scott. The book is Radical Candor, though, and she lays out a great framework for working through the challenges and getting where you want. I think another another opportunity for co-founders to really be in sync is start with why. And it's a little bit Simon Sinek of me, but if you think about why you're starting the company and you come back to getting really clear on the vision, the mission, the strategy, which is at least early on, how do you think you're going to attack your mission? And then literally write out the values of the company early on is something that most people kind of skip over. And values that are meaningful imply trade-offs. So for example, to use the most notorious example, move fast and break things means that you're not going to be super slow and in the details. You're going to move fast and break things. So there's a real trade-off there. And I think if co-founders can align on their values for the company, that'll go a long way in helping them make difficult decisions later. Second, you hit on division of responsibilities. It's absolutely essential. You have to have trust in order to have a successful co-founder relationship. And if you don't have that, then you shouldn't be co-founders. And if you get away from it, you got to work to coming back to it. So that comes with maturity and time, but it's definitely essential that you trust each other and that secondarily you respect each other. And I think the the last thing I would say is having an outlet that is outside of your company, whether it is a therapist or a coach, you mentioned both of those, is absolutely essential for personal development and for growth. It's an important part of how we're thinking of on-deck scale and how to support founders that are in our fellowship. 
And that's a really important opportunity for self-reflection and working through conflict and opportunities with your co-founder. So those are definitely important considerations when you're building a company. Yeah, uh, uh, totally. So but before we wrap, is there anything else that you'd like to say on the on the mistakes founders make or any other sort of last minute plugs for, for Ondex Scale? Uh, no, I mean, I'm just super excited to be building Ondex Scale. I think, as you know, Eric, I've been a community builder for a long time. I mean, whether it's, you know, founding an organization that has brought, you know, people together in different parts of the country or even starting... <laughs> I don't even know if I shared this with you. I helped co-found a, an organization called Startup and Tech Mixer that ran for a few years. And we'd bring around 3,000 technologists together from investors to artists to entrepreneurs and creatives. And I love building community. I'm, I'm also a founder and I love tech. And the idea of bringing a community of exceptional founders together to support each other and scale and solve their problems is really inspiring to me. And I'm excited for the challenge and uh, excited to see what we build. Amen to that. My guest today has been Ty Walrod. Uh, Ty, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Eric. And, and people can go to Ondeck Scale at uh, www.beondeck.com slash scale. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.